Would you take your Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. One of my favorite historical accounts in the Bible is the Exodus. That time in history when God led his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land. And in that history, all of that story, there's one particular part of it that has always been special to me. It's always been a little mysterious to me. It's that cloud, that pillar of fire by night, that pillar of cloud by day. It's quite intriguing. It had its practical purposes of providing shade by day, light by night. But what was it really? Or may I rephrase that? Who was it really? And what is the significance of it? Well, its significance is the same as it has been throughout all ages since God first created us as human beings. What is that? That God has always longed, has always desired, has always been passionate about dwelling among his people. They refer to that cloud, that pillar of fire, as the Shekinah glory. Now, don't get confused by that Hebrew word. It simply means the dwelling glory. I like that word, Shekinah that word dwelling, for it tells us and communicates to us God's desire for us. He wants to live with us. He wants to live inside of us. He wants us to live in him. And when you begin to think of who God is, as the self-existent one, the eternal one, the almighty one, and we could just keep on going, and then we consider who we are as finite, small vessels of clay and to realize that God loves us, that God wants to live with us, in us. Wow, what a glorious privilege it is to know God. John chapter 1 records for us, you might say, the Christmas story from a theological perspective. Well, really, it gives to us the perspective of God. There's some good, deep theology in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, and also some very important truths about Jesus, our Savior. You see, God, in the days of the Exodus, longed to dwell with his people. You remember they had that tent there, the tabernacle? It was built with the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where that Ark of the Covenant was, where the Shekinah glory would come and hover over that mercy seat between the two golden cherubims. But do you realize that in that, there was not a direct access to God? For that was just a small place where there was a veil, there was a curtain, there was a barrier that kept the average man, really every man, from approaching God's presence. In fact, only once a year 
would only the high priest enter beyond that veil, and then only with blood, as a symbol of, I deserve for my blood to be shred, to dare approach such a holy, perfect God. Why? Because the high priest was a sinner, because all of the people of Israel were sinners, and by the way, nothing's changed. All people still to this day are all sinners. And so how do we dwell with God? The whole point of the Old Testament history of the tabernacle was to give the people of Israel an object lesson to teach them that God is holy, that He is perfect, and that we are sinful. But yet it was also to teach us how much God wanted to dwell with us with nothing between, how much God wanted to live with us in spite of the ugliness of sin. So the entire tabernacle system was established as a teaching lesson for the nation of Israel and for us to realize how holy and perfect and golden, sinless God is and how sinful we are. And to teach us that without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And in the Old Testament system with that tabernacle, day by day, Year after year, blood was brought and offered, and it could only cover the sins. It couldn't take it away. But it taught us still this truth. God wants to live with his people. He loves people. If you could find the very heartthrob of God's passion, it's not about making awesome mountains, although he does that. It's not about making the magnificent canvas of the sky of colors every single day, although he does that. That's not his passion. That's not his heartthrob. Do you know who his passion, who his heartthrob is? You and me. People. That's what his passion is. And he wants to spend time with his people. In fact, all of those glories and majesties that he has created have been created to demonstrate his glory and majesty, but has also been created for us to behold and to consider our God. What's our relationship with him? All through the Old Testament, there was still that veil. There was still that veil. There was still that veil. There was that most holy place, and there wasn't that direct access into there, even with the shedding of the ram's blood and of the goat's blood, the pigeons, the turtle doves, something more was needed. Something infinite was needed. And I think most of you that are here this morning know what that is or who that is. For in John chapter 1, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. You see, at Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but what it really is, is God condescending himself, coming down to us to remove what separates us, to remove that sin once and for all and forever. And so with that in mind, let's look in our Bibles at John chapter 1, and I'd like to read for you the first 18 verses, for this is the, you might say it's the introduction to the book of John, but it's a whole lot more. It's, you might say, the foundation to the whole book of John. 
as he begins and prepares to tell us the account of the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. But... As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This is he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love, and we thank You for demonstrating it toward us and sending Your only begotten Son, Jesus, the Word, the Lamb of God, the light of the world. Indeed, we live in a dark world, and indeed, without Jesus, we would live in darkness. We would be eternally lost in darkness, and so today we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for Jesus, your only begotten Son. I pray now that as we consider truths from this passage, that you would open our eyes, that you would teach us, that you would help us to understand things Lord, I pray that it would make a difference in how we live and go before us, I pray. Help me now in the words that I say. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech, that we might understand. We pray in your name. Amen. Remember I mentioned that we are God's passion? He wants to be with us. We see that in John chapter 1. Look at the first verse. What we're going to do here this morning is we're going to compare and parallel John chapter 1, with 1, 1, with John chapter 1, verse 14. 
they're very interesting in and of themselves, and they're very interesting as we see them paralleled and compared to each other. And then it's all going to come together as we take some time and look at verse 18. And oh, I'm having to take all I can within me to not cover all the other verses in between. But our goal this morning is to look at verse 1, verse 14, and verse 18. I so was encouraged and also challenged earlier this year when a child was reciting to me here John chapter 1, 1 to 4. And I asked this child, so here it says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I said, who is the Word? God. Was the child right, yes or no? Yes. But who is the Word? And this child honestly didn't know. And so I gave this child an assignment. I said, you go home and you read all of John chapter 1 and you see if you can find out what his name is. And praise God, this child did. And he came back and said that it's Jesus. Jesus Christ, verse 17. And he's exactly right. The word is Jesus Christ. Why is he called the Word? It's really interesting, and there's a lot of discussions about it, and we could spend all the rest of our time talking about it. It's a Greek word, logos, logos, and it encompasses really the thought and ideas of everything. Some have tried to explain it and say that the Word here could be linked to the whole concept of wisdom, and that would be accurate, for God is all wisdom. The word logos has a parallel to the encompassing of everything, and that's exactly what God would be, is everything. Our time today, though, isn't to focus on understanding the, the word as it's described and used here, but to look and see of the relationship of this one and his history. In verse 1, there are three statements. Do you see them? There are three statements. The first is, in the beginning was the Word. Statement one. Statement two, the Word was with God. And statement three, the Word was God. Now, if you look at this here, what's interesting is the word was. Now, in English, when we think about tenses, we have this idea of past, present, future. Here, this is not speaking of in the beginning per se. He was at that time. It's declaring that he, he, he was in the sense that he, he was in essence. Ah, ah, in the beginning, he existed. He, he wasn't created in the beginning, for beginning had a time. And in fact, this word is described in Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega, as the beginning and the ending. He's everything. He was before the beginning. He was. In the beginning was the Word. And then it says that the Word was with God. Jesus, even before the world was created, in all eternity past, for the scriptures declare that from eternity past, Jesus is and has been. 
He was with God. And statement three, he was God. That's his identity. Here we see a little glimpse in to the triunity of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase there that he was with God is the phrase that I kind of like to zero in on here this morning. Because I told you that God... His heartthrob, his passion is about who? People. It's about us. In the very beginning in this relationship, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were with each other. They are described in Ephesians as the beloved. They're the beloved. They're together. Now, how do we get into that beloved. Well, we see in this, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Now jump down to verse 14, where we see again three statements, and they're parallel to the first three. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh. And the Word dwelt among us, and the Word was full of grace and truth. Now put your thinking caps on, and let's compare these two verses, verse 1 and verse 14. You have to look at them. Notice here I added in the subject in verse 14 to these three statements. We have the first statement, The Word was made flesh. The Word, statement two, dwelt among us. And statement three, the Word was full of grace and truth. You see, in the beginning here, He was. He is. The Word is. He was. He always has been but something very special took place 2,000 years ago when he was made, or we could say became flesh. The one who always has been, the one who created everything, humbled himself and became one of us in flesh. Now, the older you get, the more you realize how troubling that is because this flesh starts to fall apart, and it's very weak. But yet the creator of all things humbled himself and was made flesh. So we see him at the beginning of time as always having been, he was. He simply was. It's a weird way to say it that he simply was because it's a whole lot more than simply. It's a complexity that I can't wrap my mind around. I don't think anybody really can, well, except for him. He was. But then at a particular time in history, this one became one of us. Do you see him as the self-existent eternal one in verse 1? And then we see this eternal one at a point in history becoming one of us, taking on flesh. That's the parallel. He always has been, and he is. 
God, the eternal one. And now at the point of history, 2,000 years ago, he became one of us. He became human. He was God. Now he is human. Not ceasing to be God, continuing as God, but also human. I still can't fathom or comprehend that. That the one who created all things, the one by whom all things consist, first or Colossians 1, 16 and 17, he's the one who became an embryo in the womb of a woman. That child in the womb of a woman who grew in the song that um, Daniela played earlier, that, that little infant child held in the arms of his mother and father, the one who always has been, became one of us. And why? Well, here is where the two statements, that middle statement from verse 1 and verse 2 meet together. You see, in all eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are one together. We could describe it as in the beloved. That's Ephesians 1 phrase again. In the beloved. The beloved. God is the beloved. God is love. The beloved. God. They're together. They're with each other. And he took on flesh to become one of us. Why? 1 John 1, 14. And the word dwelt among us. There it is. He became a human being because he longs to be with people. That's what his goal is. Now we know that as this continues on, that ultimately his death on the cross took away that veil. Even literally in the temple of Jerusalem, that veil was rent from the top to the bottom when Jesus died on the cross, giving us full access to the beloved making it so that we can dwell in the beloved, that the beloved, God himself, lives in us, with us. This is exciting. That word dwelt actually carries the idea of one who, who carries the idea of, of setting a tent up. It's kind of like that tabernacle. He's, he's come right in, and he set his tent right up in the midst of all of us. He's right there, dwelling, living, tabernacling, you might say, with us. So now we have the Word who is the beloved with us, living with us. And you can see this parenthetical phrase, I've been skipping it here in this conversation, um, but, but even, even John, in, in being inspired to record this record, can't just, just, he just he just has to stop his main points to make some parenthetical statements because this is so amazing. He says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Here he's affirming the wonder it was to know Jesus as the only begotten. That phrase carries with it as the unique special one as being of the very essence. And that's exactly what Jesus was. He was the very essence of God. And so we see in John 1.1 that the Word was, 
And at the beginning, he began to move and work in creation, creating us. And that he was with God as part of the beloved. And he was God. And then in verse 14, we see that he became one of us. That the eternal word became one of us. Human took on flesh. For what purpose? To not just he dwell in the, the, whatever we might perceive as the heavenlies with God, but no, he wants to live with us as people. And then if you look and compare the last two statements between verse 1 and verse 14, it declares the word was God. Jesus was God. And this one here declares him as the one who dwelt, as this one is full of grace and truth. Do you know what that is? That's a description of God. That's a description of God, full of grace and truth. And when Jesus became one of us, he did not cease to be God, but he began to manifest and to demonstrate to every one of us grace and truth. And as John considers this fact, he realizes the glory of it, the wonder of it, the brightness of it. The word glory, we refer to the Shekinah glory, that dwelling cloud, pillar of fire, as glory. It's a brightness of shining. What is Christ's brightness of shining? It was the brightness of his grace. It was the brightness of his truth. And we get to see him. So do you see the parallels between verse 1 and verse 14? He was, then he became a man. He was with God He's with us. He was God. He is full of grace and truth. This is our Jesus is taught from eternity past to the beginning of creation to his incarnation, and it continues to be true to this very day. And that's what John was so excited about to launch in to this gospel, this declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ. So now let's look at verse 18. Because he's just now declared that we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. He was full of grace and truth. Verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Oh, the wonder and the glory of what's in this declaration. You see, it's a fact that no man has seen God. And in fact, actually, even after this was written, speaking of Jesus, there's a still a limitation to it because in later writings it's declared no man has seen God. You can't see God and live. To truly see and to know God in all of his infinite glory, we're finite beings and it's not even possible. Here's what's incredible, though, about it, is that Jesus, even though he became one of us finite human beings, still is able to declare it all. I'm still trying to process that. And I think I will continue to process that for all eternity and wonder 
in who Jesus is as I get to know him more and more. In 10,000 years, when I'm one billion years old, I still think I'll be discovering new things about my God because he is infinite. But Jesus, even though he became one of us, still continued in the glory of all of that because he continues and remains as God. No, no man has truly fully seen God at any time. But wait, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, hath declared God. Now there's a little phrase in there which I find really interesting and I'm really fascinated by. Why do we need that little phrase which is in the bosom of the Father. Why do we need that? I think there's something significant about how Jesus um, declares God. When you think of in the bosom of the Father, what is that? That's that most intimate, sacred, held place that a mother would hold her infant child. In fact, John actually talks about in his ministry that oftentimes he refers to himself as the disciple whom the Lord loved. He's the one who described himself at that last supper, leaning on Jesus' breast, his bosom. Leaning in in that precious place, what is being communicated here? What is God's passion. I think this phrase is conveying to us the heart of God. This bosom of the Father is speaking of what God's passions are. Why do your hearts beat? Why does my heart beat? What's our heart passions, our heart desires? I hope and I think all of us would be able to say that those heart desires are for people. Do you know why that's true? Do you know why are the, the passions of our heart are people? That's because we're made in the image of God, and that's what his situation is. If you were to actually be able to get into the very bosom of God, the very, his very heart, and know what his heart throbs were, if you could hear his heart and translate what they meant, so to speak, to, be, to use that anthropomorphism, that bringing God as viewing him in, in a body as a man. If you could understand that, what would it be? It would be people. It would be you. It would be me. And how do we know this? Well, the verse tells us. Because Jesus declares him. How did that happen? Romans chapter 5 tells us, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world, not the oceans and the mountains and the lakes and the trees and the flowers and the meadows. He loves the world of people. That's his heartthrob. If you could get into the very bosom of God, 
you would find that he's cherishing people. And it's through Jesus that this truth is declared. Look at that word declare. Let me not read this in English, but I'm going to read the Greek word there, and some of you are going to recognize it. And then those of you who don't recognize it, I'll explain it. It says here in verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath exegeted Him. Now I'm curious, how many of you know what that Greek word is? Familiar with it? Oh, good. Exegeted Him. What's that mean? Well, you see our exit sign up here? We're using a little bit of Greek in that word. Ex means out. The Exodus, the book of Exodus, is the Exodus, the coming out of the people from Egypt to the promised land. The exit. Exegesis is to bring out, to show forth, out of. Exit begins, the exegesis. So here Jesus is God, he always has been, he always will be, but in one particular time in history, 2,000 years ago, he became one of us. And the reason he became one of us, coming from the bosom of the Father, it was to declare, to show forth, to bring out who God is. And this is how John begins his gospel. He says, Jesus came to declare God. He came right from the bosom of God to declare God. And then as we continue to read all the way through the gospel of John, we get to hear about Jesus, and we get to hear about Jesus, and we get to glory in who Jesus is. And it's so exciting, isn't it? Because what's going on is Jesus is exegeting God. He is declaring God. He is bringing forth God for us to know, for us to see, for us to experience. And as we continue to see who Jesus is, what do we find about Jesus? We find the bosom of the Father. We find a passion, a love, a care for people. For people. You know, no man has seen God, and in fact, again, as finite beings, we never will fully see him in all his glory. We just simply, it's impossible. But what we need to see is the love of God. And we see that exhibited through Jesus. That's why when we turn the pages, just a few pages further, we come to John chapter 3, and how is Jesus describing his mission? For God so loved the world. That's his heartthrob. The world of people is in his bosom. He loves people so much that he wants to be with them. And in spite of sin, which separates us from him, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, the word, the everlasting one, to become one of us to die for us, 
to rise from the dead to give us everlasting life that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who is in the bosom of the Father? The whosoever. He wants everyone to be able to come to be with him. And Jesus is the one who came and declares this. He exegeted it, for those of you who like that word. He exegeted it. He declares forth the bosom of the Father. And then John launches all into this with the first identifications of who Jesus is with John the Baptist. And when we come, will you turn with me all the way to the very end of the Gospel of John, John chapter 21? We find John giving a summary of his exegesis. It's really interesting. Last verse of John. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. And there are also many other things which Jesus did. The which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself cannot contain the books that should be written. <laughs> now you know why no man hath seen God. You see, of all of his glory, of all of his majesty, of all of who he is, John, when he comes and he recounts of what is in the bosom of the Father through Jesus, is overwhelmed <laughs> and says, I've only given the introduction. But you know what? Though this remains, it's sufficient for us to know how much God loves us. It communicates us what he did to demonstrate that love for us. And it communicates all of the truths that we need to be accepted in the beloved. We've been singing in Bible out of these last few weeks the song, I'm Adopted. It comes from Ephesians. To be accepted in the beloved. That's what God wants all along. He's always wanted to be with people always wanted to be with people and he has done everything required so that we can be accepted in the beloved so that we can receive his love which requires his salvation and his forgiveness we can receive his life for he became one of us and then defeated the power of death Oh, indeed, if all that was written of who Jesus is, the Logos, the Word, the books of the world couldn't contain it. That's how incredibly infinite he is. And this infinite one became one of us. Why? So he could dwell with us, and we could dwell with him. What a privilege that is. So this morning, as Christians, as those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice in that reality. And this is not just something that's in the far-off future. It's something we should be living in right now. 
Jesus, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, goes into all of the details about how Jesus lives in us. We live in him. We are one. We are united. Just as the branch and the vine are united and connected, so we are with Jesus. We need to live that reality every day. When we're discouraged, when we're frustrated, when we're happy, when we're joyful, do we realize that we are in him, the one who dwells with us? Yes, bodily he has ascended to heaven where right now he sits at the right hand of the Father and he is preparing a place for us, a glorious place, but he also is our inheritance right now. And we have the privilege to walk and to live in him today. When we're facing temptation, the sinless perfect one, the logos, the word is living inside of me. And I have all of the wisdom and I have all of the power to gain victory over whatever the temptation is. Because Jesus lives and he lives inside of me. He dwells. He's pitched his tent with me. Imagine if I were to come to your house with my tent and put my stakes in your front yard. Would you ignore me? Well, I'd probably be that one who needs to withdraw my feet from my neighbor's house lest I stink. But not so with Jesus. <laughs> no, not so with Jesus. When he pitches his tent in your heart, oh, what he brings is life. Because he is life. He is the word. And we can worship and glory in that every single day. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the Word was made flesh, and the Word dwelt among us. And the Word was full of grace and truth. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father. John experienced that in one way. But each and every one of us, as Jesus has put his tents in our hearts, can experience that glory. For as verse 16, and again, I told you I'm going to have a hard time skipping all these verses because verse 16 talks about that grace for grace. You know what that is? See, see, if I were to come pitch my tent in your front yard, I'd be bringing all my trash, and I'd be trying to put that on you, and I'd be looking for food. I, I'd be a disaster camping out in your front yard. Yeah. Not when Jesus comes and camps. He doesn't camp. He moves in, and he brings grace for grace for grace. It just keeps piling up his grace and his truth every single day. And in fact, right on through the grave into all eternity future, we will be in the treasures of his grace. He'll be revealing it to us. It's all through Jesus. So let's start glorying in the glory right now. And you know what? The grave will just be a transition right in to his presence. Oh, the day that will be. If you've not believed on Jesus today, believe in him, trust in him, know him. He will give you life. He will forgive your sins. And he will move in. Oh, what a joy that will be.
And for all of you here this morning who have already believed, please don't ignore him. Let's recognize who he is and where he is, and let us lift him up in our hearts. Let us let him reign in our hearts that we may truly experience his grace for grace, his glory and truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Teach us, I pray, how to live with you. Thank you that you live in us. Thank you for your spirit, your Holy Spirit that you've given to us to indwell us. May we be always filled, surrendered, yielded, letting you live your life through us. Thank you for the strength you give. Thank you for the peace that you give. Thank you for the joy that you let give. We think of the season of glad tidings of great joy. I pray that everyone here this morning has believed and received those good tidings of great joy. And Lord, I pray that every day we would avail ourselves, live and walk in your joy, experiencing you moment by moment every day. We praise you in this day as we commit ourselves to you in this season of Christmas, Christmas time. May we have the joy of the Lord in our hearts, for it is our strength, and may we walk daily in you. We praise you now and worship you in your name. Amen.